Amen. Peace be with you, church. I invite you to open up your Bibles to Esther chapter 9. Uh, this evening we are in Esther chapter 9 and 10. Um, so it's a lengthy passage so with a lot of information, so just bear with me. This is the word of the Lord. Now in the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, on the 13th day of the same When the king's command and edict were about to be carried out, on the very day when the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain mastery over them, the reverse occurred. The Jews gained mastery over those who hated them. The Jews gathered in the cities throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus to lay hands on those who sought their harm, and no one could stand against them, for the fear of them had fallen on all peoples. And the officials of the provinces and the satraps and the governors and the royal agents also helped the Jews, for the fear of Mordecai had fallen on them. For for Mordecai was great in the king's house, and his fame spread through all the provinces, for the man Mordecai grew more and more powerful. The Jews struck all of their enemies with a sword, killing and destroying them, and did as they pleased to those who hated them. In Zusa, the citadel itself, Jews killed and destroyed 500 men and also killed Parshad Datta and Delphon and Espatha and Paratha and Adalia and Aridatha and Parmashta and Arizai and Aridai and Vaizatha, the ten sons of Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews, But they laid no hand on the plunder. That very day, the numbers of those killed in Susa, the citadel, was reported to the king, and the king said to Queen Esther, In Susa, the citadel, the Jews have killed and destroyed 500 men, and also the ten sons of Haman. What then have they done in the rest of the king's provinces? Now, what is your wish? It shall be granted to you. And what further is your request? It shall be fulfilled. And Esther said, if it please the king, let the Jews who are in Zusa be allowed tomorrow also to do according to this day's edict. And let the ten sons of Haman be hanged on the gallows. So the king's command, king commanded this to be done. A decree was issued in Susa, and the ten sons of Haman were hanged. The Jews who were in Susa gathered also on the 14th day of the month of Adar, and they killed 300 men in Susa, but they lay no hands on the plunder. Now the rest of the Jews who were in the king's provinces also gathered to defend their lives and got relief from their enemies and killed 75,000 of those who hated them. But they laid no hands on the plunder. This was on the 13th day of the month of Adar. On the 14th day, they rested and made that day a feasting and gladness. Then the Jews who were in Susa gathered on the 13th day And on the 14th, and rested on the 15th day, making that a day of the feasting and gladness. Therefore, the Jews of the villages who live in the rural towns hold the 14th day of the month of Adar as a day of gladness and feasting, as a holiday, and as a day on which they send gifts of food to one another. And Mordecai recorded these things and sent letters to all the Jews who were in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, both near and far, obliging them to keep the 14th day of the month of Adar and also the 15th day of the same year by year. 
as the days on which the Jews got relief from their enemies, and as the month that had been turned from that, for them from sorrow into glad, gladness, and from mourning into a holiday, that they should make them days of feasting and gladness, days for sending gifts of food to one another and gifts to the poor. So the Jews accepted what they had started to do and what Mordecai had written to them. For Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews, had plotted against the Jews to destroy them and has cast pur, that is cast lots, to crush and destroy them. But when it came before the king, he gave orders in writing that this evil plan that he had devised against the Jews should return on his own head and that he and his sons should be hanged on the gallows. Therefore, they called these days Purim after the term Pur. Therefore, because of all that, had been, that was written in the letter and what has been faced in this matter and of, and of what has happened to them, the Jews firmly ob, ob, obligated themselves their offspring, and all who joined them, that without fail they would keep these two days according to what was written and at the time appointed every year, that these days should be remembered and kept through every generation in every clan, province, and cities, and that these days of Purim should never fall into disuse among the Jews, nor should the com com commemoration of these days cease among their descendants." Then Queen Esther, the daughter of Abihail, and Mordecai, the Jew, gave full written authority, confirming the second letter about Purim. Letters were sent to all the Jews to 127 provinces of the kingdom of Ahasuerus in words of peace and truth, that these days of Purim should be observed at their appointed season, as Mordecai, the Jew, and Queen Esther obligated them, and as they obligated themselves and their offspring with regard to their fasts, and they're lamenting. The command of Esther confirmed these practices of Purim, and it was recorded in writing. Esther 10.1, King Ahasuerus imposed tax on the land and on the coastlands of the sea, and all the acts of his power and might, and the full account of the high honor of Mordecai, to which the king advanced him, are they not written in the book of Chronicles of the king of Media and Persia? For Mordecai the Jew was second in rank to King Ahasuerus, and he was great among the Jews and popular with the multitude of his brothers, for he sought the welfare of his people and spoke peace to all his people. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, Lord. We thank you that you have brought us here together as your people to worship you, to hear from your word. And Lord, I pray that you would be present amongst us that you would make yourself known, God, that you would encourage us, that you would show Jesus to us, Father, that you, um, Lord, would grant us to celebrate with these Jews the work that you have accomplished on our behalf. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you teach us, and we ask that you would do the same today for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Uh, today is our last day uh, last week in the book of Esther. It's kind of bittersweet. I've enjoyed this book, um, and I hope you did as well. Um, and over the next two weeks, our brothers uh, Jay Alvaro and Craig Powell will be sharing standalone sermons. And uh, come November, we will start a study through the Gospel of Luke. Uh, we'll be looking at the life and the teachings 
of Jesus. Uh, the story of Esther has been moving incredibly fast, and it's been developing fast, and it's getting harder and harder for me to give you a recap to bring us back in the story, but I'll give my best. Um, so if you're joining us, you'll, you'll have a place to start. So a guy named Mordecai, a Jew, uh, has failed to bow down to a very powerful man named Haman. Haman was obsessed with praise, and so naturally Haman became very angry at Mordecai, and this petty situation uh, basically became a death sentence for all the Jews spread throughout the empire of Persia. Haman bribed the king to make a decree uh, throughout all the empire that all Jews, including women and children, would be destroyed and that their goods, that all of their belongings would be plundered. And so Haman cast lots. He threw lots, they're like dice, uh, to select a day of destruction. And he set the day 11 months from when the decree went out. Little did he know what would unfold from, from there. Queen Esther, who became queen uh, through a king-pleasing competition, was secretly a Jew, and with the advice of her cousin Mordecai, she went to beg the king for the life of her people. And so we saw how subtly and with much wisdom, Esther won the heart of the king, and she outmaneuvered the most two of the most powerful men in Persia. And the king killed Haman for threatening his queen and her people. And so throughout this story, everything that Haman wished upon the Jew, all that evil came back on him. It happened to him. And then everything that he has desired for himself, that was given to the Jews. And this is the irony, this is the comedy that we see through this book. And so last week we saw how the reversal of fate for the Jews was complete. The king has allowed Esther to uh, issue a counter decree that allowed the Jews to fight back and to defend themselves against those who would attack them. And the counter decree allowed the Jews to basically use the same tactics against their enemies, including destruction of children, of women, and of plundering of goods. And so in our text in chapter 9, the dreaded scheduled day of destruction has finally come. And instead of keeping us in suspense, Right off the bat, the author tells us exactly what happens in verse 1. He says, now in the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, on the 13th day of the same, when the king's command and edict were about to be carried out, on the very day when the enemies of the Jews hoped to get mastery over them, the reverse occurred. The Jews gained mastery over those who hated them. Instead of being destroyed, the Jews, empowered by this new decree, struck down all of their enemies, over 75,000 people. 
genocide of sort. And as we read the details of the second decree, as we read it last week, and we look at the details of how the Jews killed tens of thousands of their enemies in a day, a question that we can't ignore is, maybe it came up for you, how could the Jews prevent their own destruction by destroying others? How was it moral for them? How can they celebrate that they did to their enemies what they didn't want done to them? It's a very hard question. It makes us uncomfortable that such things exist in the Bible. And my first temptation is, is to just say this is the Old Testament. People were allowed to kill one another. Let's move on. But we can't. This question, what it does is it brings us to this doctrine, the doctrine of holy war. And holy war is war that is declared by God. It's holy because it is not of human origin. And the first time we see God declaring holy war is in Genesis chapter 3 against the serpent, Satan, who deceived Adam and Eve into sin. God tells the serpent that he will be crushed. God announces holy war. At its core, holy war is war against evil and sin. The great flood in Genesis, that was God's holy war against the rebellious humanity. The destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, that was holy war. Plagues against Egypt, again, it was God unleashing holy war against his wicked enemies. And for some of us, we can ask, how could these holy wars be just, especially that we see destruction of entire cities and families Again, we have to keep in mind that at its core, holy war is against evil and sin. And in almost every instance, God called people to repentance. God called people to receive mercy before he unleashed his war. God's declaration of war is not on some good people in today's humanistic culture, we might call this unjust, but scripture is clear that the penalty for sin is its death. Exodus 34, 6 through 7, we read, God proclaims, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquities and transgressions and sins, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Listen, God is incredibly merciful, but God is also just 
God takes the iniquities and the sin of humanity seriously, and he destroys the guilty to the third and fourth generation. And not only did God declare war, holy war, against the enemies of Israel, but at times God would declare this war against his own people because of their commitment to idolatry and sin. And this is exactly why the Jews are in Persia. They have been captive because of their sin. And as we read the Old Testament, we see that it wasn't just God fighting holy wars, but at times God would call Israel, his people, to fight his holy wars. In the first war that we see, um, God calling his people to fight is a war against Amalek, the Amalekites. Uh, we visited this uh, over and over through this uh, through the study of Esther, there are parallel stories running through Scripture. Um, and way back in Exodus, because the Amalekites went out to fight the vulnerable, the tired people of God, God Himself declared this war against Amalek, and He said that He will fight them for many generations. And this war, it was supposed to come to an end. When God has commanded Saul, he was Israel's first king. This was many generations later. He commanded Saul to fully destroy them and leave nothing alive. And we all know how this story goes. Saul did not obey God. He did not destroy all the Amalekites. He spared the king and he took the plunder for himself. Saul waged war on his terms. He waged this war for his own benefit and not on God's term. He violated the rules of holy war. And we know that after that, God has turned away from him. And here we see in the book of Esther, the Malik, the enemy of God, the enemy of God's people, they are back. We read that Haman was an Agagite. He was a descendant of Agag, king of the Amalekites. And so this rivalry that started hundreds of years ago, this holy war declared by God, is sparked again here in Esther. Through Haman, the Amalekites once again are threatening to destroy the people of God. And once again, God rises up to fight for his people. And we saw through this story, God's providential hand turns the tables against them. This is holy war. God himself is engaged in it, and God's people, the Jews, are also engaged in it. And this time, they are finishing what Saul has failed to complete. Haman is destroyed. His ten sons are captured and hanged. And all of Haman's followers who were to wage war and destroy the Jews, they are killed. And through chapter 9, over and over we see, <clears throat> we read that the Jews killed in self-defense. 
The whole point of the second decree was to demotivate the enemies of the Jews, to make them stop. But we see that many of them still came out to fight. And so the people of God defended themselves. On top of that, even though it was permitted for them to take plunder, three times we read in chapter 9, verse 10, but they lay no hand on the plunder. Verse 15, they laid no hand on the plunder. Verse 16, they laid no hands on the plunder, showing that the Jews fought by the principles of holy war. And by not showing mercy to the house of Haman, by not taking plunder for their own benefit, they have completed the work that Saul could not do. And in the end, salvation comes to God's people. They are victorious over those who wish them harm. And once again, God shows his mercy. God shows his people that he is faithful to them. And when we look at the two main characters that God uses to bring about this salvation, when we look at Mordecai and Esther, they are muddled characters. Throughout the story, we saw that Esther and Mordecai were hiding their religion. They were hiding their culture and identities to get to positions of power. Sometimes they acted in outright sinful ways. And at other times, they showed boldness. They stepped up. They put their lives on the line for the people of God. They are muddled characters. Even in this war, Mordecai, because of his great power, his greatness has caused tremendous fear to many. And we read that officials and governors and royal agents of the king, they did not dare disobey Mordecai. They helped the Jews, yet it was done because great fear has fallen on them. Some things don't change in the empire. When we look and we think about why these officials fought for the Jews, do you think it was because of respect or honor or love for Mordecai? We're clearly shown here it was fear. Also, when we look at Esther, after a day of tremendous success, uh, we see here that even the king is excited. He's shocked at the success of the Jews. And he even offers Esther a gift for her success. And here's what Esther asks. She asks for another day of war. Going from defense to full offense. Maybe some revenge kicking in. Yet somehow, in the most mysterious ways, God takes these characters and he uses every piece of their lives, the broken parts, the sinful parts, the painful parts, 
the righteous and bold parts. God uses it all and he weaves all of it together to bring about salvation to his people. Just look at Esther, a orphan young girl. Painful. Taken by the empire from the only life she knew to possibly become a queen. And she uses her beauty to get to the top, oftentimes compromising her culture and her religion. She pleases the king, pagan king. She becomes a queen, and then yet she puts everything on the line to stand before an unstable king, to ask for life for her people. And she asks for life because the, 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 re, the, the, the reason why they are in situ, this situation is because her uncle, cousin, Mordecai, put the nation in danger because he has refused to bow down to Haman. What a story. From moment to moment, week to week, month to month, as Mordecai and Esther dealt with everything they were in, I'm sure they did not know how things would turn out. They did not know how God would use the decisions that they have made. They just did what they thought was best to do in the moment. And sometimes the consequences were horrid, and other times they were good. And ultimately, God has used it all, their entire story for the salvation of his people. And that is such good news for us, church. Every single one of us has a story. And if we lay our story on the table, if we lay all the pieces of our lives, we will find pieces in our lives that are full of pain, sin, brokenness, and pieces that are beautiful and redeemed. And, they, we, and we may struggle with these questions in our life. How? Why do I have these things in my life? Listen, God uses all the good. He uses all the bad, all the horrible, all of the broken the most painful and the most joyful moments of your life to weave a story of redemption and salvation. And even though in the moment you might not see his hand weaving your story from day to week to month to year, maybe your whole life has passed by, and you still don't see what is the point of your pain and brokenness. The, S, the story of Esther shows us that one day we will look back and say only God could have weaved that story. In the midst of even the most confusing moments in your life, moments of incredible pain or joy, church, God calls us to walk in faith. God calls us to live knowing that he is committed to us 
even when we do not understand or get it. When we do not see the hand of God, God calls us to know that his hidden providential hand is on the move. He will make all things work together for the good of those who love him. That is a promise. When we look at the history of God's people engaging in holy war, um, we see that none of God's heroes, none of God's leaders who were entrusted with this sacred work could fight with perfect execution and justice. They've all failed. Somehow, always, someone screwed up. Because even though they are called to wage war on behalf of the holy God, they themselves were sinful. They themselves did not have clean hands, and they did not have clean hearts. We see that with Moses. We see that with Abraham, we see that with David, and we see that here with Mordecai and Esther. They are not perfect heroes. But their imperfection, it points us to the one who would come and fight this holy war with perfect justice. And this warrior is Jesus Christ himself. When God declared holy war against evil, against the serpent in Genesis 3, God promised that a worthy, qualified warrior would come and that he would crush Satan under his feet. And God was talking about Jesus. Jesus does have clean hands Jesus has a clean heart. There is no blood on his hands. Jesus is able to execute war with perfect justice. And this warrior must come from the Jews. He must come from the Jews. But as he comes from the Jews, he does not come to only fight for the Jews. And so God's commitment here in Esther to save the Jews from the evil decree of Haman is God's commitment to make sure that Jesus would come. It is God's commitment to the world. God's commitment to save the Jews is God's commitment to save any Amalekites that survived. It is God's commitment to save any Gentiles. It is God's commitment to save from every language, people, and tribe. It is to save humanity from the bondage of sin and death unleashed by Satan. And so from Genesis chapter 3, and throughout the entire history of holy wars, including this one, As imperfect as they were, they all pointed ahead to the final holy war that Jesus would fight. 
And this war took place on the cross. Jesus' war was not against Gentiles. Jesus' war was not against any woman or man. On the cross, Jesus' war is against the ancient serpent who has deceived and who has enslaved humanity into darkness and sin. Jesus' war was to free humanity from the serpent's grip and power. Our sin, the sin that condemned us to death, our sin that made us at war with God, our sin that had to be punished by the just God, this sin was placed on Jesus. All of the ugliness of your life, all of the sinful pieces that you could think of in your life that you have done in the past and that you will do in the future, it was all placed on Jesus. He felt it. He felt your sin. He experienced it. Your sin, my sin, it exposed Jesus to cosmic shame. And then the penalty of our sin that we deserved, it was poured out on Jesus. And he paid for it with six agonizing hours on the cross, which is a torture tool for the worst of society. Jesus paid for our sin with his life. And church, because Jesus took our condemnation, the powerful grip of Satan on humanity, the powerful grip, on, grip of Satan on you, it was destroyed. It lost its power. It lost its effect. Sin lost its power to condemn us to death. We could no longer be condemned because our sin was taken by Jesus. It is no more. He took care of it. It's a reality for you, church. Your sin is no more because of the work of Jesus. No more condemnation. Zero. Let's go back to Esther 9, verse 1. And I'm going to read this verse again, but I'm going to change it up a little bit. Now in the first month, which is the month of Nisan, on the day of Passover, when the religious leaders, political re leaders, and all the dark forces of evil, the enemies of God, hoped to gain mastery over Jesus. The reverse occurred. Jesus gained mastery over those who hated him. On the third day, 
when death hoped to get mastery over Jesus, the reverse occurred. Jesus gained mastery over death, and he walked out of the grave. And Jesus won the holy war once and for all. And because Jesus won that holy war, all of us in Christ can claim that victory. All of us can say, in the month of July 2006, when sin and death and Satan hoped to gain mastery over Leo, the reverse occurred. Jesus gained mastery over Leo's enemies. Jesus saved and made peace between God and me. This is our testimony. This is how we join in the victory of Jesus. Church, it has been won. It's been accomplished. Because of Jesus' victory, every son and daughter can partake in the victory of Jesus today. Between the first coming of Jesus and the second coming of Jesus, that is the period in which we live right now. There is no more holy war like the wars of the Old Testament. We wage war against the principalities of darkness, of sin, and evil, against the cosmic forces. We do not wage war against humanity. For humanity, this is a period of mercy. This is a time where God invites those who are still at war with him to make peace. This is a time for you to make peace with God. This is a time where we fight for peace for those who do not know yet God. This is a time where he is offering mercy to the thousandth generation. But after this period, there is one more final holy war that comes. When God will put away Satan once and for all. And those who have rejected Christ's offer of forgiveness and sin of sin. Those who have rejected peace with God in this period today will be bound and destroyed with Satan in this final war. In the second coming, Jesus will come powerful and mighty to put an end to his enemies. In Revelations 19, 11, 15, we read, Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, the one sitting on it called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, 
white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. This is the coming Jesus, a great warrior. And so today, there's two positions. Whatever you tell yourself, there's only two positions. You are either at war with God or you are at peace. You are a friend of God. And all who remain enemies of God in this life will be his enemies in the life to come. There is no middle ground. All will face Jesus. You and I, we will all encounter Jesus. We cannot escape that. And God is, is inviting you with kindness, with mercy, with open hands. He is inviting you to stop waging war with him. He is inviting you to peace. Leave behind your life of sin and rebellion. You are enslaved to Satan and he is an evil master. Leave him behind. Come to him who will give you an easy yoke. You have no chance against God. Empires had no chance against God. And so the question is, will you meet him? Will you encounter him as an enemy or as a friend? Come to Christ. Confess your sin. Look to him as your Lord and Savior, and he will save you from the bondage of the serpent. He will make you a friend of God. The final part of Esther is a celebration. So for another 20 minutes, I'm kidding, two minutes. <laughs> Both Esther and Mordecai, um, in a very complicated way that we will not try to unpack, they send out letters to establish a new holiday. And they commanded all of the Jews to celebrate God's salvation. And this holiday is called Purim. Ah, the Jews still celebrate it today. They still look back to what happened in this book of Esther and celebrate God. And Purim literally means to cast lots. And it's a very ironic name for this holiday. And it was named this way because Haman has cast lots before his gods so that they would direct him and, and that they would choose the day that the, that the Jews would be destroyed. And instead, God's word was confirmed. Proverbs 16.33, the lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from God. And so what Haman meant for evil and destruction, God meant it for the good of his people 
and the destruction of his enemies. And church, we also celebrate this holiday. Our Purim is Easter. Our Purim is Christmas. Our Purim is every single Sunday. It is the day that we celebrate this great reversal of our fate. What Satan meant for evil and destruction, God meant it, and God, God meant it for good. And our, la- and our lots have been cast in good places. God has given us life in Christ Jesus instead of death. That is what we celebrate. That is what we proclaim. That is what we rejoice in, and that is why we sing songs to Jesus every single Sunday. And that is why I hope every day your heart is filled with worship and song for King Jesus. But as we celebrate, there is also one final eternal celebration to come. And that is what is awaiting all of those who are at peace with God today. That celebration will never end. There will be no more tears, no more confusion, no more sin, no more death. And all of our stories that we lay on the table that are confusing, that we can't just, we can't figure out why God, they will finally make sense. I want to close by reading Revelations 21.3. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the hope that we have in Jesus. We thank you that you have rescued us from the claws of Satan. We thank you that once we were people of darkness, you have brought us into your marvelous light, God. And that is what we are here to celebrate. We are here to celebrate Jesus who has done this great work on our behalf. He has experienced darkness. He has experienced death so that we may have life. And Father, I just pray that your gospel, that this good news would penetrate our hearts and minds, that we would be full of joy and celebration for the work that you have done, God. Father, we pray that this would be the fabric of our church, the work of Jesus, and our enjoyment of this work. Lord, make that reality for us. And those, for those who do not know you, Father, we pray, God, that they would cease from rebelling against you, that you would open up their spiritual eyes to see the beauty of Jesus and the destruction of their lives, God, that they would come, that they would fall before you, their God and their King, and that they would be saved, that they would be brought to peace with you. 
We pray that you would do this work. Jesus, we thank you again for this word. We thank you that we can find so much hope through it. In Jesus' name, amen.